This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christy Shriver. And we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Uh, this is our second episode discussing Jane Austen's masterpiece, Emma. And uh, per our usual style, we barely got into the store itself last week. We talked a little bit about Austin, although I know we're going to do a little more of that next week. We learned what a Janeite was or rather is, something I was unfamiliar with. And we explored Regency England, the age of improvement, the period in which this novel, or really all of Austin's novels, are set. And we learned what a building roman or... Building roman. Yes, or a coming-of-age <laughs> novel is. And I hope I said that word correctly. But in truth, we only uh, got one page into the story uh, setting up for us this idea of who Emma is going to be in this book in contrast to what she is not. She's not a Cinderella. She's not a victim in any way, but a strong heroine uh, in many ways, different than many female protagonists and even uh, in Jane Austen's female characters. Emma, unlike many women of the time, doesn't have to find a husband. In fact, she doesn't need a man at all, and she says so. Uh, she has money. She has an adoring father. She has position. In fact, according uh, to the text in Highbury, her world, she has no <laughs> equal. So the question becomes, what's in a story with no problems for the protagonist? Uh, the first line of the book says it all, and I absolutely love this first line. Emma Woodhouse handsome, clever, and rich with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in a world with very little to distress or vex her. So uh, as we see, Emma has no hardships, no anxiety, no internal angst. I mean, <laughs> what else could a book be about? I know. It's a ridiculous setup. Total fiction. I want to read a section out of chapter 10 that shows us that even Emma is aware of the unreality of her reality. <laughs> in chapter 10, in the version that is not divided in different volumes. I know that's a little confusing if you're trying to follow along and the chapters and the numbers are different if, if you're reading a, a book that has three volumes. But this is the straight three one. And in chapter 10, Anna, Emma is trying to set up her friend Harriet with a man. And Harriet responds to Emma and asks her why doesn't she set herself up to marry? And this is Emma's response. I have very little intention of ever marrying at all. To which Harriet finds this very odd to hear in a woman. And Anna, Emma responds and she says, I have none of the inducements of women to marry. Were I to fall in love, indeed, it would be a different thing. But I have never been in love, and it is not my way or my nature, and I do not think I ever shall. And without love, I'm sure I should be a fool to change such a situation as mine. 
Fortune, I do not want. Employment, I do not want. Consequence, I do not want. I believe few married women are half as much mistress of their husband's house as I am of Hartfield, and never, never could I expect to be so truly beloved and important, so always first and always right in any man's eyes as I am in my father's. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, there you have it. Uh, here's another great quote to go along with that one. It is poverty only which makes celibacy contemptible to a generous public. <laughs> a single woman with a very narrow income must be a ridiculous, disagreeable old maid, but a single woman of good fortune is always respectable and may be as sensible and pleasant as anybody else. Well, <laughs> I think that says it all. She's truly a woman with no need of anything and, and not even the gossips will have anything to say about it there's no story here or so it seems <laughs> i told my father you know he's our greatest fan he listens to everything we produce he reads all the books that we analyze and i told him we were gonna do emma and let me read his text he says this we are watching emma this will be a very boring book to me. If you can make Emma interesting, y'all are geniuses. <laughs> so we'll try. Challenge accepted, because I do think we can make Emma interesting. Emma is interesting, but in its own sort of way. And last week we talked about this angle of feminism, and she's challenging the status quo, and there's the political side of all that. But that's just one way to see the book. There's so much more to that. So let's jump into the story. This week, it's ambitious, I know, but I'd like to get through chapters 1 through 16. We got through sentence 1 last week. <laughs> Talk about uh, Austin's narrative style, her innovative techniques when it comes to point of view. Revisit a couple of cultural tidbits. Uh, just the kind of thing that will help us make this book a little bit more insightful. Hmm. That, that is ambitious. And you still think we get through before the bell rings in 48 minutes? Yes, the bell shall surely ring after we're through, maybe. Okay. <laughs> the secret to enjoying Emma is understanding that it's not about plot. So don't look for plot twists. That will make it boring. There's a couple of parties, some waltzing. Harriet's going to get knocked over by some gypsies. That's as aggressive as it's going to get. So right up front, let me just say, nothing happens. <laughs> You're not selling it, Christy. I mean, if it's not about the plot, what is it about? Something more interesting. It's about people. And the characters are lovable. We can identify with them. It's by paying attention to the characters that Austin charms us. She introduces us to people who, by the end, will be our friends. And they're so well described. They narrate in their own unique voices so believably that before the end, they're actually old friends. And that's what makes all shows lovable. Our good friend Paul Dooley loves rewatching reruns of Andy Griffith and the Beverly Hillbillies. He's seen all the episodes, he knows all the stories, he's memorized the lines. And one time I asked him, Paul, why do you like watching all those shows if you've already seen them? You know what's going to happen. And he said this it's like visiting with old friends. <laughs> old friends. Well, we all have some shows that we feel that way about. So true. I could watch The Dowager and Downton Abbey forever. <laughs> well, you do aspire to be her someday. I and, do. Uh, and I believe half of uh, America feels that way about the characters on the sitcom Friends. And again, that's a show where not much happens. Uh, but isn't that true about life in general? It's the characters in our world that make our lives interesting. That is the genius of Austin. She um, draws these people in Regency England in, in such a way as they might as well have been people from our hometown. Or any hometown. That's it exactly. Austin's characters are realistic and relatable. She will build a small community, not totally unlike what we saw 
Thornton Wilder do. Indeed. Uh, and we empathize with Mrs. Bates, partly because we all have someone like that in our world. But even if we haven't, we wish we had, because these characters are colorful. They're nutty, and we can laugh at them. So true. And that leads us to where I want to go when I want to talk about Austin's narrative technique. It's unique. She's going to craft for us a third-person narrative style that will make us insiders in the town of Highbury. We're not time travelers observing a group of weirdos from an outside perspective. We are insiders ourselves, and we have opinions, definite opinions, about the people we meet there. We find Mr. Woodhouse's hypochondria, an obsession with gruel, which really borders on mental illness, lovable. We find Mr. and Mrs. Elton's snobbery obnoxious, but we find Emma's snobbery forgivable. And although it should be creepy to us that Mr. Knightley has been in love with Emma since she was 13, and he is 16 years older than her, somehow doesn't really bother us. (laughs) (laughs) How does she do that and why? Emma is a book about the web of interconnectedness and friendship. And Austin will illustrate three different types of friendship. She offers a perspective on what is important in each variation of the friendships that she illustrates. She contrasts the different kinds of relationships that affect our human development. And she's going to illustrate their value for us on this little stage we'll call Highbury. And Emma is the lens through which we watch the show. <laughs> well, if we're looking through Emma's eyes, it seems Emma is particularly interested in marital friendship. <laughs> uh, yeah, she kind of is. But so is Austin. And of course, much of the plot is a contrivance on that very thing. But it's not just that. As we traverse the stage, we will watch Emma develop. The people in her life contribute to her evolution as a human. Emma becomes a better person. She has this experience of self-discovery. A building's Roman. Remember that one? Uh, yes. <laughs> because Emma is so isolated and her life is so easy, she starts out very self-centered. And her self-centeredness makes her absolutely unable to make good judgments about other people. She misjudges Mr. Martin, Mr. Elton, Mr. Churchill, and Mr. Knightley. Those are just the men. (laughs) Ah, true. And it seems to me it's Emma's constant mistakes that direct the plot. And I find it interesting that she really misreads all the men. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Well, let's jump in. Let's jump Onto the page where we left off, page one, where we learned that Emma lives with her father and her governess. Miss Taylor, but who we'll call Miss Weston for the rest of the book, just got married. And this is something that's funny because Emma's father finds it very distressing that Miss Taylor has moved out of his house. And so, therefore, it must be distressing for Miss Taylor. <laughs> uh, he can't imagine it being anything but a tragedy. He keeps saying, Poor Mrs. Taylor, as if she were condemned to be married and, and lead the perfection of life in his presence. <laughs> exactly. It's funny. And part of that characterization that Austin is so good at, because he's so totally unable to see anything from anyone else's perspective ever. And that will be consistent the whole book through. At one point, he gets in a terrible argument with his son-in-law where his son-in-law should go for vacation based on his preference that he got from his apothecary. It makes no sense, but yet we know that that's how real life actually can be. (laughs) We have those relatives. Uh, Well, uh, speaking of being hard to handle in real life, Emma's sister, Isabella, is also as much of a hypochondriac as her father. So true. Although her husband, Mr. John Knightley, doesn't seem too put out by it. Mr. John Knightley's brother, though, we'll call him Mr. Knightley, is a very close friend and a resident of the stately mansion next door, Donwell Abbey. And he basically has raised Emma and is 16 years older than her. So we've set up the primary relationships in Emma's life, and we arrive at this line where the narrator tells us the conflict or the problem that will follow Emma throughout the book. The narrator is talking about Miss Weston moving out of the house after raising Emma, and let me quote, How was she, being Emma, to bear the change? It was true that her friend was going only a half a mile from the house, 
But Emma was aware that great must be the difference between a Miss Weston only a half a mile from them and a Miss Taylor in the house, and with all her advantages, natural and domestic, she was now in danger of suffering from intellectual solitude. She dearly loved her father, but he was no companion for her. Uh, you know, Austin is introducing uh, really our need as humans to find intimacy in friendships. And um, her argument the, the, is that this requires intellectual compatibility. I will say, and this is truly snobbish sounding. but <laughs> You can do that with Emma. <laughs> well, this is a book about snobbery. Uh, but it's an idea Aristotle threw out there uh, in his own book on friendship called the Nicomachean Ethics. Oh, my Nicomachean. That oh, sounds infinitely more boring than Emma. <laughs> <laughs> well, true. Uh, but in it, Aristotle argues that without intellectual compatibility, there's no equality in a relationship. And uh, friendship without equality is, is difficult to maintain. And Austin will extend that idea both to uh, same-sex friends as well as romantic partners. Austin is very clear to highlight throughout the book which characters are Emma's intellectual equals and which are not. In fact, Emma understands this very clearly throughout of the book. Of course. I mean, she's already said that her father was not as uh, intellectual as she is. Uh, but then she brings up that Mr. Knightley is. <laughs> and it isn't too far in the story that it's obvious that Harriet is not. No. But Mr. Knightley, in fact is one of the few people who can see fault in Emma and the only one who will ever tell her about them. And although Emma doesn't find this necessarily agreeable, she does accept it. Her father, of course, cannot imagine a scenario where she is not thought to be perfect by everybody. Mm, indeed. <laughs> well, as a father, I have to admit uh, that is how many fathers view their daughters, which is no slight on his intellect. Um, but even accounting for those natural biases, uh, Austin does make it a point to point out Emma's father just isn't as smart as she is. And this is an impediment in their relationship. Nightly, even in chapter one, when he tells Emma, who has decided she is a brilliant matchmaker. <laughs> She's terrible. Yeah. But she he says that he should she should leave Mr. Elton to pick his own wife. Of course, this tips the reader that Emma may be a little more confident than competent, and it is her arrogance that will create blind spots for her. Austin also tips the reader that Knightley is going to be a voice in the novel that we as readers will begin and learn to trust until jealousy gets in his way. But that's a fact we'll talk about in a different episode. <laughs> Knightley is the closest thing to Austin's opinion of the world as we will get anywhere in the book. But changing subjects just a little bit, Gary, as we've met all these characters, and when I first listened to them address each other, especially in the beginning when it's on my mind, it's just so odd, and it jumps out to me, how formal everyone is. Mr. This and Mrs. That. <laughs> I know. It's, it's one of the hardest parts of reading Austin novels for modern people. I mean, at least for modern Americans, that's for sure. We just don't understand the social class system, uh, and it can really trip us up. The, the class-related code words have meaning that were self-evident to Austin's audience, but not to us much later. To us, sometimes it's funny, like when they refer to Mrs. Weston's pregnancy as her situation <laughs> that might result in happiness increased by the arrival of a child. Code indeed. Yes, uh, but otherwise it's frustrating. Uh, so... Here are the rules of thumb. The use of first names is limited to family members and close same-sex friends of equal status. You might need to write that down. <laughs> That's why Emma always calls Harriet by her first name. But Harriet, you'll notice, calls Emma Mrs. Woodhouse. Uh, this won't come out in the first section, but later on when we meet the woman who will eventually marry Mr. Elton, she absolutely insults Emma by referring to her husband as Mr. E and referring to Jane Fairfax as Jane instead of Miss Fairfax. It's a slap in the face. And um, Another odd thing to our ear is that a first name is used formally with the last name when two people have the same last name. So you'll notice that Mr. Knightley's brother is referred to as Mr. John Knightley. 
Mr. Frank Churchill is also uh, referred to by both of his names because his father would have been Mr. Churchill. And of course, servants were obviously addressed either last or first name, depending on what job they had. And, uh, you know, James is the coachman. It's just something to keep in mind as it lets you in on the social structure of this little world that Austin is constructing for us. Well, it makes it too long to talk to anyone. I can't imagine using four syllables. I mean, I use nicknames, Liz for Lizzie, AK for Anna Catherine. But that little cultural insight does lead me into this discussion that I want to have about Austin's narrative techniques. And this is something most scholars consider to be one of Austin's great contributions to the English canon. Jane Austen, you know, this little girl with no formal education, literally invented new forms of narration that almost all novelists use nowadays, but that did not exist before her. It's something that we call free indirect discourse and the narrated monologue. She uses stream of consciousness, which we've heard and we'll talk about with other authors. But before you're going snooze fest, (laughs) this is actually interesting. Bear with me. It is. The phrase free direct discourse sounds technical, uh, but this is how little Miss Jane Austen plays you. As you read the book, ask yourself this question. Who is telling the story? And why do I think this way about this character, but I think this different way about this other character? What Austin is going to do is dip in and out of Emma's head with you. She does this with a couple of other characters, but it's mostly Emma. And she's not being careless. It's absolutely intentional and thematically related. She fuses Emma's subjectivity to the narrator's omniscience. So what does that mean? You think you're listening to the voice of the omniscient narrator giving you this unbiased perspective, but you're actually listening to Emma's head and she is crafting your opinion for you. Oh, she seems to be good at that kind of stuff. (laughs) So uh, you mean it's the way the old fashioned stereotypical wife used to play her stereotypical brain dead husband when uh, they want to do something but they had to make their husbands believe it's what they wanted to do or they wouldn't do it (laughs) which by the way is terribly cliched i know but it's that it exactly instead unlike the old thick-headed stereotype man that we're making fun of what we find out is we as the reader catch on (laughs) to the fact that the voice in our head isn't reliable And then all of a sudden, and let me realize this is going on in your brain subconsciously. You may not even notice it or be able to put words to it. But all of a sudden, you're constantly aware that this multi-voiceness of text is occurring. uh, And some voices you can trust and you do trust and other voices you can't and you don't. Is multi-voicedness an actual word? Oh, no, I just made that up. Okay, well, all right. So so this is very much like... (laughs) What we do when we hear voices in the real world. Yes. And speaking of the real world, there's this third layer of perspective. So we have the omniscient narrator's perspective, uh, and we have Highbury through Emma's eyes, but we're going to get a community perspective as well. Uh, The infamous what will people say, the peanut gallery, or as we would call today, the Facebook crowd. Exactly. We are always worried about what people will say, the gossip perspective. This book throws out three perspectives of very small events in a very small place, and we're meant to understand that all three are perspectives of the same thing, while the truth of these events are often far from the perspectives of any of the characters. Um, That sounds very confusing. (laughs) I know. And yet she does it so well, we don't realize it. But we will. Let's notice how the story unfolds. At the beginning, everything feels very traditionally narrated. We learn about all the family members and the neighbors, and we learn about Mrs. Bates. This is a fun passage. So, Gary, read for us the description of the sweet Mrs. Bates. Mrs. Bates, the widow of a former vicar of Highbury, was a very old lady. 
almost passed everything but T and Quadril. She lived with her single daughter in a very small way and was considered with all the regard and respect which a harmless old lady under such untoward circumstances can excite. Her daughter enjoyed a most uncommon degree of popularity for a woman neither young, handsome, rich, nor married. Miss Bates stood in the very worst predicament in the world for having much of the public favor, and she had no intellectual superiority to make atonement to herself or frighten those who might hate her into outward respect. She had never boasted either beauty or cleverness. Her youth had passed without distinction, and her middle of life was devoted to the care of a failing mother and the endeavor to make a small income go as far as possible. And yet she was a happy woman, and a woman whom no one named without goodwill. It was her own universal goodwill and contented temper which worked such wonders. She loved everybody, was interested in everybody's happiness, quick-sighted to everybody's merits, thought herself a most fortunate creature and surrounded with blessings and such an excellent mother and so many good neighbors and friends and a home that wanted for nothing. The simplicity and cheerfulness of her nature, her contented and grateful spirit were a recommendation to everybody and a mine of felicity to herself. She was a great talker upon little matters, which exactly suited Mr. Woodhouse, full of trivial communications and harmless gossip. We learn about Mrs. Godard, who runs a home for girls, and we learn about Harriet. But why shall we transition from dialogue to inner monologue? In the conversation between Emma and Harriet, we meet Mr. Martin, but we learn about Emma. She's a snob. She judges the Martins before even laying eyes on them, and because she judges them, she won't let Harriet marry Robert Martin even though we can tell that Harriet is in love with him, and this makes Emma mean. We learn that from Emma's perspective, Harriet's purpose on life is to be her playmate first and foremost. This is what she says to Harriet. I had no idea that he could be so very clownish, so totally without air. Later on, she's going to say, still about Mr. Martin. At Hartfield, you have had very good specimens of well-educated, well-bred men. I should be surprised if, after seeing them, you could be in company with Mr. Martin, again, without perceiving him to be a very inferior creature, and rather wondering at yourself for having every thought of him at all agreeable before. Do not you begin to feel that now? Were you not struck? I am sure you must have been struck by his awkward look and abrupt manner and the uncouthness of voice which I heard to be wholly unmodulated as I stood here. When we get to the end of the chapter, there's no more dialogue and we've transitioned into her inner monologue, not about Mr. Martin, but her perspective of Mr. Elton. Compare these two. Gary, would you read that one? Mr. Elton was the person fixed on by Emma for driving the young farmer out of Harriet's head. She thought it would be an excellent match and only too palpably desirable, natural, and probable for her to have much merit in planning it. She feared it was what everybody else must think of and predict. It was not likely, however, that anybody should have equaled her in the date of the plan, as it had entered her brain during the very first evening of Harriet's coming to Hartfield. The longer she considered it, the greater was her sense of its expediency. Mr. Elton's situation was most suitable, quite the gentleman himself, and without low connections. At the time, not any family that could fairly object to the doubtful birth of Harriet. He had a comfortable home for her, and Emma imagined a very sufficient income, for though the vicarage of Highbury was not large... He was known to have some independent property, and she thought very highly of him as a good-humored, well-meaning, respectable young man without any deficiency of useful understanding or knowledge of the world. She had already satisfied herself uh, that he thought Harriet a beautiful girl, which she trusted, with such frequent meetings at Hartfield, was foundation enough on his side and on Harriet's. There could be little doubt of the ideas of being preferred by him would have all the usual weight and efficacy. And he was really a well-pleasing young man, a young man whom any woman not fastidious might like. He was reckoned very handsome. His person must admired in general, though not by her. 
there being a want of elegance of feature which she could not dispense with, but the girl who could be gratified by a Robert Martin's writing about the country to get walnuts for her might very well be conquered by Mr. Elton's admiration. Well, how do you feel about Emma Gary at this point? Well, <laughs> I think Jane Austen's doing an excellent job of making her out to be a snob. <laughs> She totally is. My dad called her a smart aleck. And we see her snobbery from the inside out by looking at the world from her perspective. And her perspective is terribly flawed. This is her starting point in the story. But we're going to get to watch her change. She's horrible here. We're going to see she comes really close to destroying Harriet's life. Although you can't tell this early on in the chapter. But as the story progresses... The omniscient narrator is going to leave us more and more inside of Emma's head. It's kind of bizarre, but as readers, we begin to interpret her and her unreliable perspective, and we understand what we should throw out and what parts we're going to agree with. Just like we do with people in real life, huh? I know. And I want to revisit that third voice. So we have the omniscient narrator. We have Emma's voice which is misguided. And then there's that third misguided voice, the community. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, we're back to the peanut gallery and the town gossips. Yes, and even high and mighty Emma, and you heard it there in that narrated monologue, is influenced by how the peanut gallery will perceive her. Notice why Emma likes Mr. Elton. It's not because she finds him likable. She clearly finds him annoying, but she thinks the community likes him. There's always this unnamed community voice. Mr. Elton is reckoned handsome. And what we're going to see, especially with this character of Mr. Elton, is that the community can be wrong. And I would say in real life, the community is often wrong. No doubt. And what I want to point out is that is a point of humor for Jane Austen. She's always making fun of community standards and how the community is often trivial and wrong in its judgments about the people and what they value in the community. Chapter 6 is the chapter where Emma and her zeal to get Harriet and Mr. Elton together contrives this activity where she paints Harriet's portrait. Mr. Elton is hanging out with them. Emma is certain he's there for Harriet. The reader by this time understands he's there for her. In the course of narration, the narrator says this. She was not much deceived as to her own skill, either as an artist or as a musician, but she was not unwilling to have others deceived or sorry to know her reputation for accomplishment was often higher than it (laughs) deserves. And she's talking about her painting Mm -hmm. ability. And what we have is Austin doing the thing where she takes us into Emma's mind. But in this case, we know what the outside world doesn't know and that she's completely aware of her own mediocrity when it comes to painting and art, but she doesn't mind the flattery. (laughs) (laughs) Who does? (laughs) What I find interesting in the character of uh, Emmett and how she becomes somebody we can empathize with is that she's actually a very honest character. Uh, And what I mean by that, how many people do we know in the real world that are are completely deceived by their greatness? I mean, they actually believe they're something quite opposite than what they really are. Um, I could probably name uh, name off some self-aggrandizing celebrity examples, but Uh uh, we'll stay away from that sort of thing (laughs) on the podcast. But because Emma knows herself and doesn't lie to herself, we're kind of drawn to her for this. Well, she can be very honest about herself, but very delusional about other people. And in this very chapter, let me read what Emma thinks while Mr. Elton is snooping over her shoulder while she draws Harriet. Emma thinks. This is not what she says. It's what she thinks. Mr. Elton was only too happy. Harriet listened and Emma drew in peace. She must allow him to be still frequently coming to look. Anything less would certainly have been too little in a lover. It's the playing around with the points of view that Austin creates all of the irony of the story, the satire, the humor. You barely notice it, but I think it's one of those things when someone points it out, it all of a sudden becomes obvious and it's enjoyable to watch. We know that Mr. Elton is coming around Emma to be close to Emma, 
But Emma doesn't know this, and the confusion is harmlessly funny. <laughs> well, it's it's harmless until we get to Chapter 7. Uh, that's where Emma convinces Harriet to turn down Robert Martin's marriage proposal because she convinces her that Mr. Elton likes her, which we all know is not true. I mean, in the Greek tragedies, wasn't this what we call dramatic irony, where the audience knows, but the characters don't? Yes, and we can see through Emma's own description of Mr. Martin's proposal letter that Robert Martin is nothing like the coarse brute Emma has made him out to be in her head just because he's a farmer. Austin in Chapter 7 makes you mad at Emma to watch her manipulate the simple-minded Harriet. Harriet is heartbroken to have to turn down Robert Martin, but she's too obsessed with everything Emma to advocate for herself. At this point, she's spending half her time at Emma's house and even has her own bedroom. The narrative technique of being in and out of Emma's mind is what makes us mad at her, and we're glad when Mr. Knightley, the voice of Austin herself, scolds Emma. This is a great passage to read. Let's check it out. I'll read Emma's lines. You are a very warm friend to Mr. Martin, but as I have said before, are unjust to Harriet. Harriet's claim to marry well are not so contemptible as you represent them. She is not a clever girl, but she has better sense than you're aware of and does not deserve to have her understanding spoken of so slightly. Waving that point, however, and supposing her to be, as you describe her, only pretty and good-natured, let me tell you that in the degree in which she possesses them, they are not trivial recommendations to the world in general, for she is, in fact, a beautiful girl and must be thought so by 99 people out of 100. And, And until it appears that men are more philosophical on the subject of beauty than they are generally supposed, till they do fall in love with well-informed minds instead of handsome faces, a girl with such loveliness as Harriet had as the certainty of being admired and sought after or having the power of choosing among many, consequently a claim to be nice. Her good nature, too, is not so very slight a claim, comprehending as it does real thorough sweetness of temper and manner, a very humble opinion of herself, and a great readiness to be pleased with other people. I am very much mistaken if your sex in general would not think such beauty and such temper the highest claims a woman could possess. Upon my word, Emma, to hear you abusing the reason you have is almost enough to make me think so, too. Uh, Better be without sense than misapply it as you do. To be sure, I know that is the feeling of you all. I know that such a girl as Herod is exactly what every man delights in, what at once bewitches his senses and satisfies his judgment. Oh, Harriet may pick and choose. Were you yourself ever to marry? She is the very woman for you. And she is, at 17, just entering into life, just beginning to be known, to be wondered at, because she does not accept the first offer she receives. No, pray, let her have time to look after her. I've always thought it a very foolish intimacy, though I have kept my thoughts to myself, but I now perceive that it will be a very unfortunate one for Harriet. You will puff her up with such ideas of her own beauty and of what she has a claim to that in a little while, nobody within her reach will be good enough for her. Vanity working on a weak head produces every sort of mischief. Nothing so easy as for a young lady to raise her expectations too high. Miss Harriet Smith may not find offers of marriage flow in so fast, though she is a very pretty girl. Men of sense, whatever you may choose to say, do not want silly wives. Men of family would not be very fond of connecting themselves with a girl of such obscurity, and most prudent men would be afraid of the inconvenience and disgrace they might be involved in when the mystery of her parentage came to be revealed. Let her marry Robert Martin, and she is safe, respectable, and happy forever. But if you encourage her to expect to marry greatly and teach her to be satisfied with nothing less than a man of consequence and large fortune, she may be a parlor boarder at Mrs. Goddard's all the rest of her life. Or at least, for Harriet Smith is a girl who will marry somebody or other, till she grows desperate and is glad to catch at the old writing master's son. (laughs) I do like Mr. Knightley. He does put her straight many times. Oh, well, I love these lines when Emma says, you underestimate your sex if you think they can't be swayed by a pretty girl. (laughs) 
Aristotle says there are three kinds of friendships. There is the utility kind, where you get something out of the relationship. There is the pleasure kind. Um, sexual relationships can fall into that category. But there are obviously uh, other times of pleasure relationships, your baseball buddies, your fishing buddies, something like that. But then there are what Aristotle calls the virtuous friendships. Uh, in this kind of relationship, friends love one another for their identity and not for what they're getting out of their relationship. And um, there's this old saying that says, a friend will help you move, but a good friend will help you move a body. Uh, <laughs> so that's a switch from the second to the third kind. Well, that's cute. And that argument demonstrates that Knightley and Emma are intellectually compatible. As you read these next chapters, we're going to see utilitarian relationships versus virtuous ones. And there's a lot to be said as Harriet and Emma move forward. And we'll see that Emma isn't all selfish and evil. Harriet is clearly beautiful, but she's not refined. And Emma helps her. That's a good thing. And Emma doesn't just help Harriet. Emma has a heart for her community. I want to read another passage. And this is something that we're going to hear from the omniscient narrator's perspective. Let me quote. They were now approaching the cottage, and all the idle topics were superseded. Emma was very compassionate, and the distresses of the poor were as sure of relief from her personal attention and kindness, her counsel and her patience, as well as her purse. She understood their ways, could allow for their ignorance and their temptations, and had no romantic expectations of extraordinary virtue from those for whom education had done so little. She entered into their troubles with ready sympathy and always gave her assistance with as much intelligence as goodwill. In the present instance, it was sickness and poverty together which she came to visit. And after remaining there as long as she could give comfort and advice, she quitted the cottage with such an impression of the scene as made her say to Harriet as they walked away, These are the sights, Harriet, to do one good. How trifling make everything else appear. I feel now as if I could think of nothing but these poor creatures all the rest of the day, and yet who can say how soon it may all vanish from my mind? <laughs> well, that is amazingly honest. And first of all, uh, I love how the narrator gives her credit for being generous for generosity's sake and not for self-serving reasons. And uh, we've all seen lots of people who help others because of what it does for their ego, but uh, not for the help they extend to the person that they're helping. But even more honest, when Emma leaves the house, she looks at Harriet and owns what we all know to be true. The troubles of other people bother us when we look at them, but we also quickly uh, jump into our own lives the moment we walk away. <laughs> of course. And we can tell by Harriet's response that that just goes right over her head. She says, so true, one can think of nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I want to skip now all the way to chapter 15. There's a lot more to say and point out, but we just don't have time. But we are going to see Emma push Harriet into this relationship with Elton. And Elton is obviously interested in Emma, but Emma doesn't see it and so forth and so on. And it goes on and on until we get to the Christmas Eve party at the Westons. And of course, the whole setup for the evening is funny. At least I hope you can find it funny. There is the crazy Mr. Woodhouse, who's paranoid about the weather. There's Isabella, and my sister, also a hypochondriac, frightened by the weather. Harriet was supposed to come to the party, but she's sick and can't make it. Elton is there all the time, pushing to be near Emma. Emma, the entire night, is trying to get away from him and trying to hear about Frank Churchill, the character we'll focus on in next week's episode. But from Emma's perspective, the perspective we get for the entire chapter, the night is miserable. And to make matters worse, there are two carriages. She, her brother-in-law, Mr. John Knightley, and Mr. Elton are supposed to be in the one, and her sister and her dad were to be in the other one. But Mr. John Knightley forgets and gets in the wrong carriage, leaving Emma and Elton alone to ride together. And of course, Mr. Elton, who had been drinking just enough to be loose-lipped, takes the opportunity to do what Austin humorously calls to our modern ears, makes Violet love to her. <laughs> <laughs> mm, there's a phrase that's changed in its meaning over the years. Well, for real, hasn't it? Well, it's worth reading the lines of this Violet love. Gary, if you'll read Elton's lines, I'll read Emma's. 
It is impossible for me to doubt any longer. You have made yourself too clear. Mr. Elton, my astonishment is much beyond anything I can express. After such behavior as I have witnessed during this last month to Miss Smith, such attentions as I have been in the daily habit of observing, to be addressing me in this manner... This is an unsteadiness of character, indeed, which I had not supposed possible. Believe me, sir, I am far, very far from gratified of being the object of such professions. Good heaven, what can be the meaning of this? Miss Smith? I never thought of Miss Smith in the whole course of my existence, never paid her any attentions, but as your friend, never cared whether she were dead or alive, but as your friend— if she has fancied otherwise, her own wishes have been misled her, and I am very sorry, extremely sorry. But, Miss Smith, indeed. Oh, Miss Woodhouse, who can think of Miss Smith when Miss Woodhouse is near? No, upon my honor, there is no unsteadiness of character. I have thought only of you. I protest against having paid the smallest attention to anyone else. Everything that I have said or done for many weeks past has been with the sole view of marking my adoration of yourself. You cannot really seriously doubt it. No, I'm sure you have seen and understood me. It would be impossible to say what Emma felt on hearing this, which of all her unpleasant sensations were uppermost. She was too completely overpowered to be immediately able to reply, and two moments of silence being ample encouragement for Mr. Elton's sanguine state of mind he tried to take her hand again as he joyously exclaimed, Charming Miss Woodhouse, allow me to interpret this interesting silence. It confesses that you have long understood me. No, sir. It confesses no such thing. So far from having long understood you, I have been in most complete error with respect to your views till this moment. As to myself, I am very sorry that you should have been given way to any feelings. Nothing could be farther from my wishes. Your attachment to my friend Harriet, your pursuit of her, pursuit it appeared, gave me great pleasure, and I have been very earnestly wishing you success. But had I supposed that she were not your attraction to Hartfield, I should certainly have thought you judged ill in making your visits so frequent. Am I to believe that you have never thought to recommend yourself particularly to Miss Smith, that you have never thought seriously of her? Never, madam. Never, I assure you, I think seriously of Miss Smith. Miss Smith is a very good sort of girl, and I should be happy to see her respectably settled. I wish her extremely well, and no doubt there are men who might not object to. Everybody has their level, but as for myself, I am not, I think, quite so much at a loss. I need not so totally despair of an equal alliance as to be addressing myself to Miss Smith. No, madam. My visits to Hartfield have been for yourself only and the encouragement I received. Of course, I love that line. Everyone has their level. But isn't that where we identify so much with this story? That is honest. Even today, doesn't everyone have their own level? Of course, in our progressive mindset, we try to say that we don't judge by levels. But even saying that we're not judging by levels, in some sense, we're just switching the criteria and judging people by different levels. <laughs> <laughs> but yet again, Emma in chapter 16 begins to get the big picture. And we see it because this chapter is entirely inside of Emma's head. Emma realizes in chapter 16 that she has brought pain and humiliation not on herself but on Harriet. She realizes Elton doesn't love Harriet, but he doesn't love her either. He wanted to marry well, and having the arrogance to raise his eyes to her, pretended to be in love. But she was perfectly easy as to his not suffering from any disappointment that need of care for. There had been no real affection either in his language or his manners. Signs and fine words had been in abundance. Tone of voice. Less allied with real love. She need not trouble herself to pity him. He only wanted to aggrandize and enrich himself. And if Midwood House of Hartfield, the heiress of 30,000 pounds, were not quite so easily obtained as he had fancied, he would try for Miss Somebody Else with 20 or 10. But that he should talk of encouragement, should consider her as aware of his views, accepting his attentions, meaning in short, to marry him, 
should suppose himself her equal in connection or mind look down upon her friend so well understanding the degradations of rank below him and be so blind to what rose above him as to fancy himself showing no presumption in addressing her it was most provoking perhaps it was not fair to expect him to feel how very much he was her inferior in talent and all the elegancies of mind. The very want of such equality might prevent his perception of it, but he must know that in fortune and in consequence she was greatly his superior. It's a very interesting inner monologue mm-hmm. to me. Of course, I can't read the entire chapter, but Emma begins this journey of self-awareness, and she has understood that she's been horrible to Harriet, Something we've all known since chapter two. Yes. (laughs) And and what we are all wanting to see is what she is about to do. In the real world, most people are cowards and and they act cowardly in a situation like this. And we've seen it hundreds of times. um, You're caught hurting someone and your response is actually to double down. Uh, on demand that you're right and the world is wrong. And we see this in a world of politics um, in the office and in our homes. Exactly. An obnoxious, spoiled Emma doesn't do that like you would expect. Her response is, I have to make this right. Quote, the first error and the worst lay at her door. It was foolish. It was wrong to take so active a part in bringing any two people together. It was adventuring too far, assuming too much, making light of what ought to be serious, a trick of what ought to be simple. She was quite concerned and ashamed and resolved to do no such things no more. (laughs) (laughs) And yet we see if we finish the internal monologue uh, that she has a ways to go before she arrives at where we as readers know she needs to be. It's going to be a slow progression. Well, that's true. But Emma, like the rest of us, is a work in progress. And although she is quick to resolve not to meddle, she takes a minute to actually stop meddling. Mm. It's hard to give that up. <laughs> well, we will progress. And I guess we should progress next week since I think we busted through our 45-minute mark. Yeah, we didn't make it, I don't think. <laughs> well, um, hopefully uh, you've enjoyed the discussion and we hope you're enjoying Emma. Uh, And if you were in the camp that the store is boring, hopefully we've given you a different way to look at it. So thanks for listening, and uh, please come by to visit with us on our social media. It's how we do Highbury in the (laughs) modern world. So visit us on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok. I mean, good grief, that's a lot of social media. And please don't forget, if you enjoy our work, please tell a friend that that's the way we grow. Peace out. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns